Hello and welcome to Oats for Breakfast. Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with The Socialist Project, an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto. I'm your co-host, Asiya. And my name is Umer. Today we are talking to Sam Gindin, who is an internationally renowned labor activist. Did you know that Sam was born in the Soviet Union? No way! In Siberia, of all places. <laughs> I don't believe that. It's true. Look up his Wikipedia. <laughs> I don't believe that. It's true. Okay, I'm gonna look this up. <laughs> he's Russian? That's crazy. He's a Soviet? You'd never guess. Uh, you'd never guess that he's an agent for the Russian state because he is such a friendly man. Yeah. And there he is, yeah. Born in Kamiski, Ural, Siberia. Yeah. Former Soviet Union. But he's um, from the prairies too, in a way, though. Well, yeah, he grew up in Winnipeg. <laughs> that's right, yeah. yeah. And that's where Jordan Peterson is from. Is he? Yeah. <laughs> What's up with Winnipeg? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Producing a thinker is on both the left and right. I guess so. I think we need to unravel this conspiracy at some point. Episode 5. <laughs> We talked to Sam during the last episode as well. We talked to him about Doug Ford's victory, as well as about the limits of the NDP. And today, we are going back in time, uh, and we're talking to him about the days of action that took place when the last conservative government was in power in Ontario, which was the Mike Harris government. What the Harris government did was initiate broad cuts, closing down 39 hospitals, cutting millions of dollars from various social programs, clawing back uh, social housing. He eliminated a $37 a month benefit for pregnant welfare recipients, saying that he wanted to make sure those dollars didn't go to beer. It's a little... Well, you know... Pregnant women. <laughs> They're known for their beer drinking. Cons- beer consumption. Specifically, not <laughs> alcohol more generally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, being pregnant is stressful. You need to take the edge off, but it's a good beer. In response to the hard right stance of this government, uh, the labor movement decides to mobilize. Yeah, it does so in a very special way, organizing the days of action. So in total, there were 11. The first one took place in December 1995. They went on in, until about nine, 1998 and, you know, involved shutting down public transit, closing all the schools, closing the big auto plants. And basically, you have a, a situation where the city is a ghost town. Mm-hmm. And the way they would do this, and Sam talks about this in his interview, is, you know, instead of workers picketing their own workplaces Mm -hmm. so that they wouldn't get in trouble you know if because they're technically not on strike so you would have you know the auto workers would go and picket in front of some other workplace that workplace would go and picket in front of the auto plant yeah and so this this kind of cross picketing would take place eventually you have you know hundreds of thousands of workers and community people and Mm -hmm. community members who have taken part in these 
very large scale actions. It required an enormous amount of coordination to get these different unions to strike at each other's workplaces, coordinating with community members and with employers, with city councils at some point. It's just a crazy amount of labor that went into organizing these days of action. So should we roll the interview? Yeah, let's cut to the interview. Okay, let's let's cut. Okay. okay. Ford's victory brings to mind the government of Mike Harris. Should it bring Mike Harris to mind? Are there actually important differences that we have to note? You have to remember that in the at that moment in time, we had just had an NDP government, and which the labor movement supported, although there were divisions because the NDP government had actually imposed constraints on the public sector. It rolled back wages and collective agreements. Pretty drastic thing to do because it set the stage for any right-wing government to do that. So there are actually divisions uh, in the labor movement that were very profound because the auto workers actually joined with the public sector in being criti- critical of this. Had they not done that, the whole private sector would have been on one side, kind of quietly protesting but really supporting the NDP, and the public sector would have been left out to dry. Mm. The fact that the auto workers joined with the, with the public sector was a message to them, oh, you're part of a larger trade union movement, and we're with you. Right. So you had that division. Then you get Harris, and there's a question of well, how to respond. And a lot of workers had defied their leadership and voted for Harris. Yeah, Harris won because he did relatively well. You know, it wasn't, you know, a lot of workers supported the NDP, but he did relatively well amongst workers. Part of it was that one of the issues was actually affirmative action. Mm. The unions took a good position on it, but they didn't do the education. So not doing the education, Harris could actually exploit it. Uh, that was, you know, one issue. The other was the NDP had promised to provide uh, nationalized auto insurance. And that was going to be a big benefit. Well, they backed down. So, so you know, what workers were seeing was, this is what our friends are doing. They make these promises. They don't deliver. They back down. So they were alienated. You know, you, know, you express that anger. It's something you see everywhere. People getting angry and alienated. And they vote against uh, people who broke their trust. So it was in this context that the labor movement started organizing the Days of Action. How did that happen? So the labor movement's very weak. And the question is, well, how can it respond? And some on the left were calling for a general strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had just lost an election. They had just lost a lot of their members. There's no way you were going to have a general strike. Steel workers weren't going to support it. Retail workers weren't going to support it. And so the labor movement came up with this strategy. They came up with the strategy of having, let's uh, focus on shutting down one community at a time. Mm-hmm. And the great advantage of doing that is it stretched over time. If you had a general strike, you'd have it, yeah. have a good showing, and it's over. Yeah. This way, people spent, you know, everybody in each community, when you said it's going to, we're going into London, the newspapers were full of stories about chaos and this is going to be disaster, which meant actually that the workers were sitting around talking about it. Mm-hmm. So for four months, everybody was talking about it. And then it happens. And then the labor movement could send all its best organizers into that community, which right. you couldn't do if you had a province-wide strike. Mm. And if you could shut down the schools, the post office, transit, and a major manufacturing sector, it would look like a general strike anyways in that community. 
And that we had the power to do. The bus riders were on side. The teachers were being threatened by the cuts. The posties were radical and on side. Mm -hmm. And the auto workers were ready. So if steel and, you know, other manufacturing sectors and service sectors didn't do it, it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Towns looked like a ghost town. And then you would move on to another community. So it actually stretched out for two and a half years. So it was two and a half years of organizing. And the other thing the unions did was because you're shutting down a workplace, uh, workers are going to lose their pay. Well, there's no way workers were going to do this unless you actually explain to them why they should do this, mm. uh, that it mattered, that it was going to affect something. So suddenly the unions actually had to use their own organizations and structures right. to convince people. They had to go in and talk. Even if members were going to yell at them at first, they had to convince them that. So that was effective. And another thing they did was it's illegal to shut down your own workplace during the life of a collective agreement. So they got other unions to do it. Oh. Or maybe retirees, people who couldn't be fired there. Like the posties would shut down an auto plant and mm -hmm. we'd go shut down the post office. Or yeah. So it actually created a, a new kind of solidarity across unions. Mm -hmm. So all these things kind of came out, not because somebody had actually thought about it that carefully. It was almost like backing into a good strategy. What were the outcomes? So whenever you talk about outcomes and you're evaluating something, you have to say what your criteria is for evaluating it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if the criteria is that Harris steps down because he's overwhelmed by this opposition, well, mm -hmm. it failed. Right. He didn't get defeated. Well, the other criteria might be that is Harris going to be reelected? And, yes. uh, and he was. In, in terms of defeating Harris, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And it couldn't have. I mean, no, no, no politician who's got an electoral mandate do you feel like perhaps the, the cuts were less bad than Yeah, I, I think that there were two things. Uh, if you track the polls, you can see that as we really got into these days of action, the polls were really turning against Harris mm -hmm. for various reasons. Some people just didn't like the commotion. Business was getting a little bit nervous about all of this mobilization, but mostly because people were getting to understand the issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, 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 the first place we did this was in London, Ontario one of the coldest days of the year in December. And and the issue was uh, welfare cuts. That mm. was the only thing he'd actually done yet. He, he did a lot very fast, but at that point, he'd only done... And the question was, well, why would auto workers and, and bus drivers, etc., be supporting this? And, you know, people would go into plants and they'd get booed for saying, we're going to shut this down and lose that debt. And by the, time, by the time they heard the explanations, mm. you know, a lot of the explanation is, well, what kind of a community do you want to live in? Mm -hmm. Do you wow. want to live in a community where people are being, who, who you know, can't afford to eat or being thrown on the street? Uh, or do you want to live in a, you know, a decent community? And people began to turn around. I can't imagine something like that happening today. We should get to that in a second because that's really where you're driving at. But just before that, I just want to say in terms of the impacts, there was a change in the polls, which was significant. Mm -hmm. You could make a, a case that, I think a good case, that it slowed them down. That things could have, you didn't reverse things, but it slowed him down. And if you, if what he saw was your weakness, like you have a general strike and everybody goes home, it might have just encouraged him. So you could say that it slowed things down, but it didn't defeat him. There's no, you know, if that was the measure, then a lot of people, especially social democrats in the trade union movement, because social democrats were very nervous about the introduction of a new form of politics. Mm. that people would be out in the streets and they'd be out shutting things down rather than voting for the NDP. What they wanted to argue was, well, you've got to wait for the next election to elect the NDP. The reason the argument didn't work is you just had an NDP government and they let you down, yeah. but also an election's four years down. There's a lot of damage that's going to happen. So part of the urgency was we've got to act. Uh, 
But I think what really happened, you know, from what I saw was uh, it actually energized the trade union movement. Mm. It got active. It was dormant and it was active again. And a lot of young people who weren't very active in the trade union movement got active. This excited them. They were doing things. You know, guys were going into the post office from the auto workers and buying a one cent stamp Mm. and then going to the back of the line and going through again. And just to block everything up. And people were creative and they were doing things. So so in, ter- in terms of whether this began to build some potential, in terms of a new kind of politics, a new kind of understanding, I think it was very successful. So what happened to this new politics that was developing? You know, a lot of the criticism from the left was that the labor movement uh, let everybody down. Now, you have to understand that the way these things were structured was that in every community, uh, there was a committee set up with a chair and a co-chair. One of them had to be a man and one had to be a woman. Or and I don't even think it had to be a man. At least one had to be a woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of them had to be from the movements. Uh, so there was already being built this kind of link between movements and unions. And even between movements. Like in London, I think there was you know a couple dozen movements that never talked to each other. All of a sudden, they were kind of getting united too. Uh, and then... Uh, you know, one strategy was hopefully we thought we could kind of inspire rank and file in unions like Steel to rebel and get Steel out and then, you know, kind of maybe shut down southern Ontario, then shut down the north and keep it escalating. Uh, and it began to run out of steam. And when it began to run out of steam, the trade union leadership called an end to it. They said, we've gone far enough. Mm. Uh, and the movement people were generally disappointed. And a lot of the left attacked the labor leadership for not for having given up. And my response was different. And my response was that, well, you all know that the labor leadership can be progressive, but it's not revolutionary. Mm-hmm. These people were not going to, you know, have an all-out war and shut down the province forever until they won. This wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And anybody on the left had to go into this understanding that. There was a question of democracy because they shut it down without discussions with the movements. Mm-hmm. That was a problem, which, again, made people feel like in the end, they just answered to themselves, not to any broader movement. But I think the real failure was on the left, that with the, with the strategy was you'd go into like Windsor, you'd organize this whole thing, and then you take all your organizers and you go to London or Peterborough or wherever you were. Um, and in, in, in Hamilton, we had more people than the Seattle protests had mm. in Hamilton. Right. In, you know, in Toronto, we had you know, a couple hundred thousand people. You know, basically shut down Toronto. Um, so, but the problem for the left is that the question is, what should we have done in each of those communities once something was built mm-hmm. and everything moved to another community? That was a moment to go into those communities and make sure there's some, you're doing something that's permanent. Like, you know, somebody suggested, for example, that uh, we should start going door to door and doing a survey of what people need. Mm-hmm. And then going door to door, you know, at the same time, getting doing a survey of what people's capacities are, and then figure out, well, what can we do? What can this, you know, if it needs childcare, if it needs care for older people, and there's people who want a part time job doing it, and then you start making some plan and you lobby and you fight for it, something. Mm-hmm. But the left didn't do that. The left kind of moved on. Well, do you think that was because of lack of capacity or lack no of- i think i th- well yeah it's it's a lack of capacity but i th- i think it's a weakness on the left that it was thinking about only about how do we escalate it and kind of follow it rather than actually saying well what is the space here for a left to do 
And that should have led to, to the argument that, well, the way you build capacity yeah. is you keep some people in this community, you get the people who are mobilized and you know, excited about this, and you figure out a strategy for them to do in that community, whatever it is. In different communities, it might be something else. Mm -hmm. And that way, you keep it going, and you keep giving people things to do. And then if it gets shut down by the labor leadership, which you probably couldn't stop, maybe that would make it keep going. But if it gets shut down, you're going to continue to organize for the long term. Right. And I think that was what didn't happen. What about uh, internal to the labor movement itself? I mean, is it is it possible that there could be a leadership that wouldn't back down? It's a very good question. At that point in time, I'd say that there were leaders who were committed to taking this fight further. But I think even the best of the leaders weren't sure how much you could really keep pushing this. Like, mm -hmm. where were you going to eventually end up? The end, you know, what were you going to do? You'd have to have an all-out general strike mm -hmm. uh, that would what, go on forever. But it's more than that. I mean, these are labor leaders. They're, 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 they're acting as good, progressive, militant labor leaders, which is different than saying, we want to take over the, you know, we want to take over the province and transform it. Yeah. And then whether you can do it in Ontario is another question. I mean, there's, you know, there's hard questions for the left. Yeah. And especially given, well, what base did you have for building this? Did you have a political party? No. Yeah. Did you have a socialist party? No. Mm -hmm. You know, so the question always was, uh, I think, uh, that with, without a left, and by I mean an organized left, not just lefties around, that is really thinking about the long term and sees these things as opportunities and builds on them, uh, you couldn't at this moment win. You can't go 50 years without building socialist consciousness and say, hey, now we'll change it. You can change a lot, but you have to prepare. Mm -hmm. And, you know, had that happened, maybe, you know, what happened after the days of action, we would have had a left today. But I, I think the problem is that the labor movement on itself will only go so far. It's basically a defensive organization. You don't join a labor movement because you want to change society. You join it because that's where I work. Yeah. You can be a conservative. Yeah. And often you weren't even organized. when There was a union when you got there. So, you know, to change these people, you can change them in progressive ways. But to go beyond that requires an organization whose main focus in life isn't how do I... How do I deal with grievances? How do I get a better wage? How do I change society? And how do I create people who can change society? And we didn't have that. Right. And I think that was a major limit. So, uh, you know, maybe the labor movement could have gone a bit further. I think that's possible than it did. But it wasn't going to win this battle. So what followed after the Days of Action wrapped up? It, things just flattened out afterwards. Partly it was exhaustion. You know, you, you really mobile. You had to kind of go back to normal life, and it was exhaustion. You couldn't keep doing this. But it was also, there wasn't a strategy to keep building. And I don't think unions could have had that strategy uh, without some kind of a socialist organization. So what happens after that is the labor movement goes flat. Uh, globalization is increasing. There's more pressures on people. And there were defeats. And the defeats weren't just of benefits and wages. They were defeats of the institutions, and they were very much about defeats of expectations. People stop expecting more. Instead mm -hmm. of thinking that you can change the world, you start thinking in terms of, can I hang on to yeah. what I've got? And, you know, you're living through the impact of that. That's how it affects the popular culture on the left, and that makes things different today. So how are things different today? And what does that mean for reviving something like the Days of Action in the present context? 
the fact that Otto could play that kind of a role in those days, which kind of kept the labor movement, the public sector, with you know, seeing itself as still part of the labor movement, Otto can't play this role anymore because it's been so defeated. Yeah. Otto is doing things like negotiating two-tier wages, which means that two people in this, doing the same work, the younger person is just exploited more in a collective agreement to save something for the other people and you just can't rebuild the union on that basis. So Otto isn't in a position. It's hated, for one thing, by all all unions, public sector and private. So there's nobody to kind of play the leading role that Otto did. That's one difference. There's also the defeats. I mean, the defeats, you know, it's, it's a long time now. And the defeats over a quarter of a century, you know, are they matter. Uh, so the question is, can you revive this? And I don't think you could... You couldn't get the unions together in a room. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't think you could actually say, let's do it. People's heads are just like, are you crazy? Like, you know, they can't even, you know, they're not even strikes going on. You know, it's just, it's it's so defeated. So I think you'd have to do it differently. And I think that the way you'd probably have to do it is to convince people that we are really going to get our ass kicked. And we really have to prepare for that. This isn't going to be just, you know, a few cutbacks of inspectors. This is going to be a massive attack on social programs and on unions, and we better get ready. And I think that what ha- what the labor movement has to be convinced of is that every union has to start getting ready. They have to start talking to their members. They have to start winning their members back from the right. And... Uh, so there has to be massive education, which the central labor bodies can do. And, you know, some agreement that we all have to go back and at least do the job in our own backyard. And if you do that, you can then start talking about maybe some solidarity, like if the teachers are on strike against cutbacks in education because their contracts are coming up. Uh, can we take some action in support? Is that possible? What does that look like, taking action? Well, I think like just like in the days of action, you have to think about this uh, as being creative. So it might mean that uh, if there's public sector cutbacks, you know, if the teachers are really attacked, then the message is, we're next, if you're in the public sector. So you might want to, uh, you know, not just support them by joining their picket lines. You might actually think about a wildcat for a day. Mm. And you might start with slow things. Let's... You know, if you just did something that said, we're going to take off two hours from work, you have to explain to people why, you have to leaflet, you have to have discussions. And you start doing those things. You start actually asking, well, what are these different unions in different sectors capable of? You know, it's harder if you're working in a long-term care unit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you get creative about it. Uh, you know, Michael Hurley had suggested in, in thinking about, well, what would long-term care workers do? because they don't want to strike. Mm-hmm. They don't want to strike against the patients. He said that they should have the opposite of a strike. They should actually call workers in from another shift and all go into work and show the kind of services you could provide if the government actually cared about you. Right. And then put, what's management going to do? Is it going to keep you out? In which case, they'll get the blame for it. Mm-hmm. Or is it let you run the workplace? But you, you don't want to th- start thinking about going door to door and building in the community. And, and then you want to think about whether workers can really use their power. Ultimately, then, what would you say is the significance of the days of action from the standpoint of how we should be strategizing today and what we should be trying to do? 
one of the greatest lessons for workers is actually historical. You sit there and you say, well, what can we do? And you look around. And when you show that, well, people who faced the same or worse situations did something, mm-hmm. that's actually quite inspiring. If you say to workers, look, in the 30s, which is the last time we had a crisis as big as the last one, yeah. people came up with sit-down strikes. They came up with inventing a shop steward system, so there was some democracy. You know, they did things. You know, industrial unions exploded. Uh, you've got unions and resources now. What are you doing? Yeah. And so, so I think the Days of Action is an important point of reference. It gives us a chance to talk about something that isn't so far away and ask, okay, maybe you'll do it differently. But isn't this what we should be talking about? Thanks so much once again, Sam. Uh, thank you so much. little. Uh, My dad was a secondary school teacher and uh, I was present at the Toronto Day of Action. And though I was quite young, I do remember especially the excellent effigies that were created of Mike Harris and a few other of the ministers. And yeah, it was a very energetic rally. It was like a very positive kind of space. I remember a lot of energy, a lot of great posters, very colorful. So for a child, it was a jolly good time. Only later as an adult that I realized that was a day of action and that was part of history. So that was in October 1996? I couldn't tell you. Well, <laughs> How old you must have been? Well, I shouldn't ask. That's not... <laughs> Listeners then, don't need to know my age. Okay, I guess not. <laughs> Let's just say anywhere from <laughs> 3 to 13. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Is yeah. That, is that, yeah. I, don't, I think I must have been around 7. I think. Well, you would have been eight years old. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> Great. If you're born in the same year than I am. Well, we, I, I was. Yeah, I would have been. Okay. I would have been eight. All right. Great. October well, I, 1996. I yeah. yeah. So when you, you were out and that was alongside 200,000 other people. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Do you it remember? Did... It Was it big? Yeah, I do remember it being huge. I remember it being like one of the most crowded places I'd ever seen. And you've been a socialist ever since. So the days of action were effective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so what was your takeaway from the interview, Omer? I think it's interesting to, to start thinking about... So Mike Harris gets elected June 9th, 1995. Mm-hmm. And on December 11th, the first day of action takes place. So that's a seven-month period. The organizing for that first day of action in London, Ontario would have taken quite a bit of time. And so there there was an effort made to to start organizing almost right away mm-hmm. to oppose uh, the Harris government. Now, I guess it will have to be seen how long it takes for us in the present moment to start organizing against the Ford government in a substantive way. I mean, you know, we've already seen rallies and protests and, and, you know, there have been meetings about organizing some kind of coalition, but it's not clear what's going to emerge. And I think Sam is careful to point out, and I think rightly so, that things are different. So, I, I, I mean, and a lot of us are talking about the days of action. We, of course, decided to do a podcast episode on it because we think it's uh, important to think about and think over. But it's also important to remember that the situation today is different and we can't simply repeat what was done before. 
Yeah, I, that's a really good point. But, you know, I guess it's not, we're not completely left out to dry. We still have this example on which we can build, as Sam was saying. Maybe our podcast will play a small role in helping to create this response. Uh, probably not, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's uh, one can help. Uh, like a small role. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, small role. Yeah, of course. And that, I, I guess that's why we're trying to do this. Okay, well, thanks once again for listening to the podcast. Please come back for next week. We'll be talking to Sadia Khan about the sex ed curriculum. We're also going to be talking to her about the support for Doug Ford that exists among immigrant communities. And if you have a bit of extra change, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash oats for breakfast. And if you'd like to email us, you can do that by going to, or not by going to, but by sending your email to podcast at socialistproject.ca. To learn more about the Socialist Project, go to socialistproject.ca. Everything you need is there. All right. Till next time. We'll catch you later. Bye.